you know, in the past, you guys have made uh, references towards a uh, fashion style, and I had no reference for that. And then I was watching a uh, a video the other day where he was introducing John Papa and the uh, style oh. guide presentation. And I was like, okay, I see what you guys are talking about. <laughs> yeah. Does your team need to master AngularJS? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to ours, angularbootcamp.com. This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code AngularAdventures, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 38 of Adventures in Angular. This week on our panel we have Joe Eames. Hey everybody. Ward Bell. Hello. John Papa. Howdy. Lucas Rubelke. Yo. We also have a new addition to our regular panel, and that is Katya Eames. Hi. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly, Katya? I'm Katya Eames. I'm Joe's daughter, and I'm just kind of a high school dropout programmer at the moment. Woohoo! Bill Gates. Dropout. <laughs> we also have a special guest this week, and that's Ben Nadell. Good afternoon from Irvington, New York. Now, you were on the show a month or two ago, but do you want to introduce yourself anyway, since you're not regularly on the show? Sure thing. I'm the CTO of a software-as-a-service company called Envision App. We build a collaboration platform for design teams where people can create online interactive prototypes and then share those prototypes within their company, within their social media circles, within whatever stakeholder circles they have at their means, and get feedback and iterate on design and try to get to a better piece of software before they actually have to put in development time and effort. Uh, I am a huge fan of Angular and a huge fan of JavaScript. I've been coding JavaScript for 10, 12 years or something. It was basically the first language I learned. Wow. There are some people who would say you never learned a programming language. (laughs) (laughs) Some days it feels like that. (laughs) Now, I just want to empathize with all the listeners who heard Chuck's introduction. I assume he pronounced your name correctly, Ben. Is that right? Yeah, Ben Nadell. Yeah, I, I, I want to empathize with everybody who's like, Nadell, oh my goodness, I've been doing it wrong in my I head all these does. years. <laughs> I thought it's like saying, I like to have a latte. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, all these years in my head, I was pronouncing it wrong, and I feel bad. Oh no, I've learned to respond to just about anything. With okay. one finger, I mean... <laughs> I want to ask you really quickly, Ben. Haven't you been on the show recently? Yeah, about a month or a month and a half ago, something like that. So I wasn't on that episode, so I missed out getting to chill with the awesome Ben. But your job, you said a CTO. So are you an actual working CTO where you actually do some technical stuff or more management type guy? I would assume you're pretty I'm, working because based on how you blog. Yeah, yeah, I've come to realize that I'm pretty horrible at managing people. So I deal mostly with technology. I come from a full stack background, database, server side, client side. And primarily, I kind of just go wherever the fires are right now, trying to learn more about DevOps, but that's a long journey, it seems. Yeah, I, I spend most of my day doing 
technical work. Awesome. And for anybody who happens not to know Ben very well, you are one of the most interesting Angular bloggers out there. Oh, thank you very much. So everybody's blogging about normal stuff, and you're always blogging about crazy things. It's like, oh my gosh, I have to sit down and get a headache as I read your blogs. And it's awesome. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I walk a, an interesting line because I don't want to blog about things that are just in the documentation because I feel like I, I know the documentation gets a lot of grief, but I don't want to just echo it. So I try to find an angle or a perspective on something that might be directly in the documentation, but talk about the hurdles that I had understanding it or the hurdles that I had implementing it or edge cases that I hadn't considered. So I try to put my slant on it, even if it's not necessarily something so far out there. It does seem, as I read your blog, that it's sort of driven by the things that actually you run into as problems. I'm one of those guys that worries about people who do premature performance analyses of things like before they ever get to the problem, but it seems to me that you have a lot of posts about that are sort of performance-focused that arise out of your experience. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about how these performance questions arise for you and where it really seems to matter. What kinds of things are people doing when it really matters? Sure. So I just maybe a little bit of the history of the app itself. So about two, two and a half years ago, we did a complete full rewrite of Envision as we know it today. And prior to that, everything was an individual page, right? And you make a request to the server, you get your response. And it was all these massive jQuery files because there still was a lot of interaction in the app, but albeit within a single page, not in a single page application sense, but in a single page representing part of the application. And, you know, thousands and thousands of lines of totally incomprehensible jQuery stuff. We sat down and said, okay, we need to completely scratch this, take what we've learned, learn from the mistakes that we've made, and rebuild it as a collection of single-page applications. And at the time, I think Basecamp had just come out with its new nested page model, and uh, we were using Basecamp at work at the time. And in terms of performance, we had looked at Basecamp and thought to ourselves, like, this is kind of the model that we want to approach, where the pages load very fast, and even if there are pages that require some load time, if you've been to a page and then you come back to it, it loads instantaneously. So when we set about rewriting the application from the ground up, we really wanted to leverage caching as much as possible, client-side caching for data. And uh, that was an interesting journey, especially considering that when we started working with uh, Ajax requests, we were using the resource module, which I think at the time was just part of the Angular core. I think it may have been factored out by now. And that had its own hurdles. But as far as performance, that was kind of our level of entry. We wanted pages to show up fast, but we didn't really have anything else on the radar. Over time, all of the performance things that I have dug into in the last two years have become symptomatic of actual use cases of the application. So if you can imagine that the application revolves around projects and projects contain screens and screens contain links and comments and annotations, when we design the product, you don't necessarily consider the scale that people are going to use it or imagine that people use it at the scale they end up using it. So you have designs coming out of the product team that don't think about things like pagination or lazy loading or they'll build in features like manual sorting that make sense when you have say 10 projects but not necessarily when you have 800. The engineering team has had to work hand in hand with the product team to see where we can kind of give and take where they can reform some of their designs to allow the engineering team an easier time to build better performance. We try to leverage Angular as much as possible to jump through as many hoops and, and deal with as many tricks 
as possible to squeeze as much performance out of the application itself. But over time, as the application's grown, it's just a lot of performance problems have come to the surface. Now, I want to ask something about performance here. It seems like when we're talking about performance in something like Angular, I'm assuming it doesn't really impact the amount of bandwidth or other performance on the back end. This is strictly user experience, or am I making an assumption that doesn't hold? It is strictly user experience, with the caveat that the more complex the user interface becomes, the more data we tend to need to stream back to the client when we're instantiating a view. And, you know, you have a lot of cooks in the kitchen. And unfortunately, what we'll find is that we'll have an interface that is working very well. And then the designers come in and they say, oh, we'd like this little data point to be added here. And so someone has to wire that up on the back end. And suddenly that data comes from a query that hits the database on a column that wasn't indexed. And now a query that took four milliseconds takes seven seconds. And everybody feels that impact very quickly. Is that a server-side-induced delay, or is it because of the way you're handling it on the client? It's a server-side. The the client doesn't necessarily need to know how that data is being gathered on the back end, right? It could be coming out of a cache. It could be coming directly from the database. It could be coming from a variety of places and being aggregated. The client just needs to make the call to the server to get the data, and then it's up to the back-end engineers or the full-stack engineers to make sure that that gets uh, delivered most efficiently. So some of the user experience can be made better by making the back end more responsive. Oh, yeah, 100%. And, and and then there were things, I mean, I know this is a talk about Angular, of course, but things like enabling gzip compression for JSON responses and putting assets behind CDNs, making fewer AJAX requests, right? Aggregating data in a single request versus using several cascading or parallel AJAX requests. There's it's there's no magic bullet. It's, it's a lot of trial and error and trying to weigh the complexity of the page versus the performance of the page and dealing with globalization. It's definitely an art, it feels, a lot more than a science. So I'd like to talk a little bit about Ward's first topic, which was being driven out of actual things that you've encountered. Overall, how much do you feel like your team, your application spends thinking of in front of performance problems, right? Like, let's design this so that there's not a performance problem, or versus we've got a performance problem, how do we fix it? Yeah, most of our performance improvement is reactive rather than preventative. And how do you um, feel about that? I, I don't want to say anything that would get me in trouble, but I, <laughs> I, you know, so, so, right, we have our product. I thought team. you were the boss. <laughs> the boss of the engineers. So we have our product team and we have our designers and our product leads. And one of the points of contention that we often have is how can we get the designers to think about user interfaces and design user interfaces that are more conducive to performance? And the other side of that, we have the point of view that we don't want our designers to be constrained by that type of thinking. We want our designers to be thinking about user experience and what feels most organic and natural, and, and how do we create workflows that solve the most appropriate business problems and not get weighed down with thinking, well, you know, what is this going to feel like when it has to be rendered in a browser and deal with AJAX and deal with images and so on and so forth. Historically, we have just built whatever they have sent us and put it into production and kind of react to performance bottlenecks that show up. We've taken a bit of a smarter approach recently where we do a little bit more of engineering validation before it actually moves into development. So the designers will work on an interface and a particular feature within the application, and then they get together with the engineers and say, okay, here's what we're envisioning. What are the red flags? Like, where do you see this going really wrong? And that's definitely helped. But still, 
we spend a lot of time being reactive because even when you see design and even when you see it in local development and it's isolated, you don't get the wide range of natural use cases that you then have to account for once a feature has already been deployed. So I assume most people will have heard the quote by Donald Knuth that premature optimization is the root of all evil. You kind of indicated you'd like to be more proactive about it, but how do you feel like that plays in with what Knuth says? Sure. I think there are things that are premature, and then I think that there are some best practices that can just be incorporated into into all of your development. I mean, when we talk about web development in general, not necessarily just Angular, though some of these things become more pronounced with Angular, is that DOM, Document Object Model, mutation is the most expensive thing that you will ever do, right? You could iterate through a JavaScript array or execute a for loop a million times in a second. Probably it's not going to be too much of a burden on the browser, but you add a thousand DOM elements and the world is going to freeze momentarily. Ben, if if I could interrupt for a second, that's a great point. So we hear that a lot and I agree with you, but let me push back for a second from a, let's say, junior developer level. The average developer hears a lot that, hey, do less DOM manipulation or don't Mm -hmm. do it at all, right? But at the heart of it, templating really is DOM manipulation. So I'm trying to understand as a developer coming to you hearing this saying, what should I be doing instead though? Instead of doing that, what should I be doing? Sure. I don't think it's necessarily an instead of. I think it's more about timing and weighing responsiveness versus performance. So for example, one of the problems that we have often, and this is not a problem that you solve once, it's a problem that you tend to solve over and over again, is the idea of accidentally forcing the browser to perform a repaint where it actually has to render the DOM that you have changed. And you'll see this a lot of times with ng repeats. Most problems are ng repeat oriented simply because that's where you get a lot of data and you put it on the page. And if you have directives that are on an ng repeat element or you have jQuery plugins that are being integrated into ng repeat or inside the content of an ng repeat, what we often run into is something inside of that code, say like in the linking phase of a directive where it has to calculate the dimensions of a DOM element or something like a jQuery plugin that's trying to calculate something for a custom scroll bar. There's a a variety of things that can happen where each time that ng-repeat element stamps out one of the clones, it has to then repaint the browser. And now what you'll find, you move from being able to render a thousand ng-repeat items in a second to being able to render, you know, just a couple because the browser is constantly stopping to repaint. So it's not that you're not doing DOM manipulation, it's that you're doing it in a way that allows the browser to chunk it at the end of a particular set of rendering operations, like at the okay. end of a digest cycle. But so isn't I, Angular supposed to handle that for us? In other words, if I give an ng repeat, I say bind to a thousand items. Isn't it? I mean, I don't literally expect it to whack the DOM a thousand independent times. I expect it to compose something and drop it in there. Are you saying that ng repeat is inefficient, or is it something else about ng repeat, such as all the watches, that is the is the problem child? I mean, performance is really death by a thousand cuts unfortunately. It's no one thing and no one thing solves it in my experience. So from from a, the most basic standpoint, right, if you think about the ng-repeat directive and what it's doing, it's a single watch. There's, It's not like it creates multiple watches for each item. It creates one watch on the collection, which granted happens to do a lot because it has to compare the items in the collection itself. It's the things that then get applied to each instance of the ng-repeat clone that can then start to really accumulate 
probably hundreds, if not thousands, of so, so let's, on a particular page. Right, so let's pull this out for a second and think. Sure. What we're really talking about with an energy repeat is the same thing we're talking in any language, right, where it's a for loop. So right. we're doing something many, many, many times, and an Angular that many, many times happens to be in, in anything in a DOM, happens to be a lot of DOM manipulation. But as War was pointing out, and I think what you're trying to say is there's things that you're doing in the NG repeat inside that loop that you have to examine. It's not just that the NG repeat is bad. It's by itself, it's fine. Right. It's what kind of watches you're adding, what kind of data is being brought into there. Are you using the one-time bindings? Are you using track by? Are you making HP calls inside of there? Are you throwing away the data? How large is your list? Are you using virtualization? As you say, it's death by a thousand cuts, but it can be very difficult, as you say, to diagnose what is the issue, especially when I find in my enterprise experience, it's not just one NG repeat. It's an NG repeat that happens to have another nested NG repeat. Oh, yeah. And that's where I usually run into my real problems. Yeah, is absolutely. that something you see? Oh my God, all the time. I mean, nested NG repeats, I'm, I can think of several in my application that do that and cause a problem. So one that comes to mind is we'll have an NG repeat that outputs a collection of tiles and each tile represents a project in the application. And then inside each one of those tiles, we say output the list of people who are associated with that project, right? Uh, right. As an avatar. Mm -hmm. So this problem is even more than just ng repeat inside of an ng repeat. It's that we also now have images involved. And what happens now? I have an ng repeat inside an ng repeat that's rendering images and that's sucking up HTTP requests out of the pool. And can I do right. things like? And it's a very common situation. It's not something that's it's very isolated. I mean, having nested sets of lists is actually pretty common out there. Absolutely. So one of the tricks that I use is I will try to not build parts of the DOM tree until I actually need them. So your mileage is going to vary on this approach depending on how the interface looks and reacts to user interaction. But one of the things that I'll do for an example is if I have an ng repeat that has elements that have hover states and inside of that hover state you have DOM elements that get shown that aren't there normally. What I will do is actually create a compile directive that will subsume the ng repeat before the ng repeat executes, go through it, find these common elements that don't necessarily need to be shown right away, physically pull them out of the DOM before the ng repeat has even compiled itself. And then what I can do is use event delegation after the ng repeat has rendered. So once the ng repeat renders and the user is mousing around, let's say they mouse into a particular ng repeat instance, I can trap that at the delegation level, say, oh, you have not been into this project or this tile before. Let me clone link and inject the elements that weren't there in the first place. So what happens is, let's say, for example, I have an ng repeat of 100 items, and inside of each of those, I have 10 items that have to get listed in some sort of hover state. Instead of rendering 1,000 DOM elements with potentially 1,000 watchers, I can implement 100, and then as each one gets rolled over, I can clone and link 10 additional things, and then I can rip them out of the DOM when the person mouses out of that element. So, I mean, this is obviously this, you know one of the more advanced things that I've ever done with Angular, but once you can like wrap your head around how compiling and linking and transcluding works, it kind of gives gives you the opportunity to really reach into the compile and linking lifecycle and say, oh, you know, let me not link that yet. I'll link that later if I need to. And let me change this so that I rip it out of the DOM, but I have a marker that I can get back to so that I know what I'm talking about. And John indicated things like the one-time bindings you can do, which that becomes a whole new adventure if you're dealing with cache data. I mean, it's very exciting. It, it is very cool. And it's a lot of fun. I agree. I think 
types like us, we, we like to dive into those things. They can be rabbit holes at times too. And oh, yeah. what I often have to get pulled out of, and Ward's really good at doing this for me when I'm coding with him, is wait a minute, John, let's think about this problem. Instead of attacking the performance issue, maybe we need to relook at how this screen and this experience has been designed. So yeah. in some cases, maybe we have too much going on in the same place, and that's the reason we have 14 levels of nested NG receipts, <laughs> for example. So, <laughs> yeah. I don't see a problem with that. That's pretty normal. <laughs> hey, yeah, let's create a what? single web page with 48,000 things on it. Right, and, and the way it often starts is that the designer will come to you and say, that's what the user wants. And you really look into that and say, did the user really say that, or is that what they were used to seeing in something else? Can we achieve the... This is where... But this gets back to where you started from almost, Ben, where you were talking about that dynamic of the developer-designer divide. And when they become separate departments and it just sort of flows downstream one way and there's no conversation, you can get locked into wasting a lot of time designing around something that if the, you sat in front of the designer and the user again and said, boy, I wonder if we can't look at what your, what your workflow is again and see if we can figure this out together, we could get someplace good. Yeah, and one of my favorite ones I hear about a, a lot, and I, something had recently happened was, let's say you've got a screen where you've got to enter a bunch of data for each person. And maybe, let's say you've got, maybe you're buying tickets for an event. Maybe you like go to see a rock concert, ACDC, let's say. And you're doing that. And let's say you have to enter a bunch of fields for each person who's attending. Would you expect in the old style world, we'd have maybe seven people attending, all seven people to be flowing in a vertical direction. So you scroll, you figure, you enter data, you scroll, you enter data, etc. Or would you possibly think about redesigning something like that as performance issues to say, show me ticket for uh, the first person and then, you know, press a button, do a gesture swipe, whatever your interface is and show me uh, person two. Or when it's simply completed with person one, have it automatically change the view to show person two. Meaning, don't show all seven at the same time. Actually use UI view or the router or other NG constructs so you're actually destroying the old data on the DOM and bringing in new so you're not constantly dealing with these things. And Mm -hmm. that's just one example of ways I think designers can be our best friends is they can help us solve these problems without technical solutions just simply by showing us easier ways to present information. Yeah, I mean, I agree a thousand percent with what you're saying. And everyone has their own type of constraints in terms of the team dynamic, as well as also being constrained by what is already out there in the wild in terms of your product's feature set. It's one of those things where, let's say you release a feature that's not very performant and you have a million users and then you look at your database and you say, oh, 2,000 people are using this feature and it's not performant. Is that a sufficiently small number of people that I can justify removing it to increase performance for everybody else. And it becomes not just an engineering question at that point, it really becomes a product question and a marketing question, a sales question and support question, right? Because you start removing features and now the support team is going to start getting tickets about well, where did this go? I can't find the feature anymore. And, and the bigger the product gets and the bigger your team gets, the more people you have to have on the same page agreeing with the same outcome before you can really start to implement things. Yes, you, you might. And I, and I think Plus you need to see support it. Tickets. Sorry, John. No, no worries, Joe. I'm sorry. This is an exciting topic, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think that the thing I was trying to say is that I think you need to look at this the same way or I need to look at the same way I look at technical problems. Meaning nobody likes it when you walk in a room and say, hey, you know, the thing you wrote sucks, you should do it this way. So we shouldn't be going to designers as technical people saying, design it differently to help me. But instead, maybe the better way to go is to say, look, I've thought about this and I'm having technical problems with this design. Could this be solved in this way? And look, I just did a quick mock-up with some code to show you how I think it could work. And then, you know, kind of go back and forth. You know, don't just come in with the problem is what I'm saying. Come in with a partial solution to show people what you're thinking because we don't talk creative and 
and creative people don't talk tech, not always. So we have to meet them halfway to say, this is what we mean by this. So I think if you put some skin in the game, it really comes out a lot better. I want to kind of change topics a little bit, mainly because I I think we all deal with the difference between designers and developers, and I I think we've pretty well covered how to have those conversations. What I'm curious about is, so you build a feature into your application, and your test application, it runs fine, performant, whatever, blah, 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 and then somebody comes to you and says, I've got 20,000 records in here that it's trying to show, and it takes forever to load up. So how do you go about actually figuring out where the performance issues are so that you can get in and fix them. Sure, absolutely. So the first thing I'll do is sometimes look at what has changed on that page recently, because oftentimes we don't go from most people using some small number and then someone using a large number. Usually we have an ever-increasing usage pattern, and then suddenly something is really slow. So one is just looking at the git commit history for a particular set of files and seeing, did anyone do something suspicious that maybe we could just do a quick fix? If that doesn't happen, then usually the next step for me is digging into the Chrome developer tools. And I have historically been a huge fan of Firefox and especially Firebug, which I don't know how I did web development before Firebug. And Chrome dev tools, I was like, okay, yeah, it's like the same thing until I found all the profiling and the heap allocation monitoring and the painting and stuff and oh my gosh this is like the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life where you can click on the page and you see the stack traces of all the JavaScript actions that are taking place and where all the painting is taking place and what's blocking and forcing the browser to repaint and what initiated those requests and it's seven layers deep in the JavaScript files and the Chrome developer tools are mind-bogglingly awesome and that That's definitely my go-to for figuring out where the performance problems are coming from because not only will it show you where the kind of the runtime problems are having, where you execute an action and then it takes place and now you're seeing why it's slow. The other really amazing thing about the Chrome developer tools is the ability to look at the memory usage over time. Some of the performance problems we see aren't from the individual actions, it's from the accumulation of memory over time and why that memory is not being de allocated and you can see you can turn on these heap allocation monitoring where you can go through your application and it's recording to see what memory is being allocated and you can see what memory is not being deallocated and what parts of your application are maintaining references to that memory so you can say oh I mean it's just as a very concrete example I use a UI if heavily in the application because unfortunately a large part of our application is still running on AngularJS 1.0.8 there are some constraints that have not allowed us to upgrade very timely so we had UI if, right, because before we had NGF. And UIF had a really serious problem where when you destroyed the element with UIF, it was removing the DOM element and then calling the destroy event. And the problem was any jQuery element or jQuery plugin that was attached at that point, when the DOM element gets removed, jQuery goes through and deletes all of the data associated with the elements to free up the memory. But then the problem is that the plugins don't necessarily know it to be destroyed until the destroy event is called. But at that point, they don't have references to a lot of the data that they were using to manage their own internal memory structures. So you end up with these memory leaks that happen over time, and you can't necessarily see that until you're using the application, you're looking at the memory allocation in Chrome DevTools, you're saying, oh, I see all of these references coming from this slider plugin, which is you know creating a, an iOS-like scroll bar, and it's not being able to be destroyed because the element that contains it is being managed by UIF, and UIF has this problem. So then you have to go into UIF and patch it so that you reverse the events that take place. 
So you make sure that it calls the destroy event before it removes the DOM element, and now suddenly that huge memory problem is freed up, and now you go and you test again. You say, oh, now the page is running X percent better, but now that I've removed that layer of problem, I'm seeing now, okay, I have these forced repaints inside this ng repeat, or I have these timers that are firing too often, and all of that is visible inside of the Chrome DevTools. It's quite a marvelous tool. So for somebody that's listening in here and thinking, oh, wow, that sounds super awesome, but the Chrome DevTools are kind of a big thing, right? Yeah. Especially the performance stuff. Where's a great place for somebody to go and start learning how to utilize the performance pieces of the Chrome DevTools? Yeah. Yeah. Another way of taking that is I would love to watch you, because you always do these great little video pieces in your posts, and I'd love to see you sort of take us on a journey through that analysis and so so how that the Chrome Tools revealed it to you and all that stuff. I I know you don't have anything to do, but... (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you, so it's interesting, right? So we often talk about imposter syndrome in the engineering world. I assume this exists elsewhere as well. As much as I love talking about the stuff that I talk about, when it comes to things like the Chrome DevTools, I mean, I learned a lot of what I know watching presentations by, I'm going to butcher this name, but Adi Osmani and Paul Irish and a couple of other people on the Chrome team. And you watch their presentations and I feel super insecure about like, oh, I'd be talking about some tiny portion of this. I'd probably get half of it wrong. And these guys are so amazing and they obviously know the Chrome DevTools inside and out, but I have a lot of practical experience at this point, and it'd be, it'd be something that I would love to kind of build up the courage to do, for sure. I think I'm going to plug you here, because in each of these little performance things that are on your blog posts, I mean, we're, we are having a session on performance, and you have these little vignettes mm-hmm. in which you discuss something, and you bring the Chrome tools up, and you use it just as you need to, and only so much as you need to, in order to illustrate the point that you're making. And I find that valuable, because otherwise, I know the things you're talking about there with audience and Paul Irish and stuff, and they're wildly impressive, but I wonder if I'm the guy who can ever take the time to learn all that. And you kind of bring it down in digestible pieces. So I think you should take advantage of the fact that you're an imposter and just do what you're thinking is superficial because that's exactly what most of us want. Right. Well, I am sold. <laughs> <laughs> Way back when, earlier in our conversation, one of the interesting things that Ben was talking about was when he had that NG repeat problem and how he did sort of just-in-time view construction. And then we got into, hey, couldn't you design yourself out of having to deal with that problem at all? And I think we all agreed that that would be great if you can. And then Ben comes back and says, but you know what? Sometimes you got to live with it. So what are you going to do if you got to live with it? And that was when you you were talking about what I'm calling just-in-time view construction. Mm-hmm. So even though if you were to look at the template the way it was originally written, it required you to build on all those things, you know, a thousand times, you're doing some magic in there that says, eh, not really, I'm going to fake it here for a while until somebody actually needs to see that 30th row, and then I'll create the view for them. Is that approximately what you were saying at the time? Yeah, yeah, 100%. If you think about the DOM structure and the way Angular consumes the DOM, right? So it walks down the DOM and it's running all these compiles. And then when it hits the bottom of a particular DOM tree and it's done compiling, it starts linking them back on the way up. And then at each particular level, it executes the compile based on priority settings, numeric priority settings, and it takes terminal and transclude and things of that nature into account. So what I'm doing is essentially before the ng repeat actually does its thing, right? It's just a single element on the page or multiple elements if you use that like block style syntax, which I almost never do, but 
If you think about before it does its actual iteration, or it's just a single element, and that element then during the linking phase and the subsequent watches gets cloned and linked and appended to the DOM. What I'm doing is kind of going a step above that or a step before that in the DOM. I'm saying, okay, as the compile process is walking down the DOM, let me stop it where it is and find the ng repeats internally and then find the particular element that I want to remove. So remember at this point, it's still just a single element on the page and I pull out the element that I want to defer until later and I run it through the compile service. And so the compile service will return a link function that will allow me to clone it later on. At that point, the compile process then continues to walk down the DOM. It hits the ng repeat. ng repeat compiles its element less the components of it that I've already stripped out of the DOM. So it's actually compiling fewer bits of data. And then when it goes to iterate through its loop and it clones and appends, it's not including the data that you ripped out. So then what I do is I listen for particular events from the user, like the mouse enter, and I will take that compiled element that I ripped out and got the link function to. I use the link function to clone the extracted template and then inject it into the particular DOM element that the user is mousing over, which is the ng-repeat instance. And at that point, it'll link to the appropriate scope. Well, there's another interesting point, right? So each ng-repeat instance has its own scope. So as the, as the user mouses into the particular ng-repeat instance, I have to determine the scope from the DOM element itself. Angular attaches the scope using the dot .scope method. So I can say, oh, this particular item is associated with this particular scope. So I can grab that scope, then take that linking function that I got during the compile phase, link the clone the element to the particular scope, and inject it into the appropriate ng-repeat element, in which case all of the directives inside that will now fire and work all their magic. And then if the user mouses out, as an example, then what I can do is I can call a destroy on that scope that I was using before rip those elements out, and now the DOM's back to where it was before. It's not simple and you're jumping through hoops, but that approach has typically had a very huge performance impact on page rendering for me personally. The visual effect, just for those trying to imagine it, is as you move from item to item in the list, the detail appears when you enter it, and then the detail disappears as you move away. So the user experience is the detail comes into view, and the detail is the stuff that you're ripping out and plugging back in again on the fly. That comes into view as the user is interested in that item, but then as soon as they move on to another item, it just disappears from view, and that's kind of a compromise with the designer who would have thought that all those things were there instantaneously and you said well you know what let's negotiate you kind of negotiated with them didn't you in the sense of saying for this little trade-off in user experience which is they'll only see the detail when they visit the row or visit the item i can give you the performance you want and that worked out right yeah, and you know, between you and myself, some of those are discussions and some of those are kind of executive decisions. <laughs> right? Sometimes, for example, right, if there's no DOM element to begin with and then you inject it, certain things like fading in become a little bit more problematic because it wasn't that the element had no opacity until you hovered into it. So the element didn't exist. So there's nothing to fade in. So sometimes you have to say, okay, it's not going to fade in, it's just going to show. And I'm not going to tell anybody about it because this is going to fix a lot of performance problems. And then if someone wants to complain about it later, we'll address it more effectively. With ng-animate, some of those concerns become alleviated because it helps with the ng-enter states and so on and so forth. You know, sometimes it has to be a conversation and sometimes something is so glaringly a performance benefit that I find, and maybe this is an abuse of my title, that I just have to do that without asking. 
So one of the things that struck me about your scenario is it's fairly complex, the steps that you're going through, grabbing the link function, holding on to it until later, watching mouse over, et cetera. Can you approximate some of this just by throwing pieces inside of an NGF? So it's an excellent question. So again, a lot of the hoops that we had to jump through are the fact that we're running 1.0.8 in a large portion of the application, which didn't have NGF. We use the Angular UI module to fill in some of that gap. So that gets you part of the way, because certainly you can turn on a value, and that value can then determine whether or not a DOM element's in place. The next issue that you run into is that, okay, well, what that means then is I have to have something that's still listening for the event, like the mouse into, mouse out of, or mouse enter, mouse leave more specifically. And that has to set some sort of a view model, and then something like the NGF has to be watching that view model for changes, and then it has to do its thing. So you're definitely getting a good performance boost in that you are deferring a portion of the DOM, but you're still also then incurring watches for the view model that's managing the NGF state. Now, granted, that's still going to be a huge performance increase because you go from however many watches are inside that DOM subtree to just a particular one for the NGF. So I'm certainly not downplaying that at all. It's a huge performance boost, absolutely. But uh, not necessarily exactly the same thing. Not quite as much. But when you say hover off and the NGF goes back to false, it rips the DOM, those pieces back out of the DOM, right? Then do you go back to fewer, you don't uh, you don't keep accumulating watches. If you then hover over all thousand items, you don't have another thousand new DOM nodes that have a whole bunch of watches associated with them, right? Right. One of the steps is when the person mouses in, you find the scope that you need to bind to, but then you don't actually bind directly to that scope. What you do is you create a child's scope that uses that ng repeat scope instance as its prototype and that way you can destroy that scope later on when you when the user mouses out and that will automatically unbind all of the watch bindings and the event handlers and anything else that's listening for the destroy events such as jQuery plugins that are integrated properly so you don't accumulate watches if you're being careful about destroying scopes. But if you're not careful, then yes, you accumulate and you end up with really weird behaviors and watches that fire a lot and event handlers that fire too often, so on and so now, forth. If you're on the latest Angular and using NGF, do you get the same benefit or do you have to go back to manual? No, no, that's exactly what it does. It okay. creates a child scope and then it destroys the scope. NGF is amazing. I love it. So... I know we've been going for a little while here. I wanted to ask you some of your opinions about Angular 2. I don't know if you <laughs> happen to see Dave Smith's talk at ng-conf or if you played around with Angular 2 and its performance. My experience with Angular 2 is just with some of the presentations I've watched. I'm not good with names. Dave Smith, is he the one who did the stock table and it had like a thousand items? Yeah, they're, mm-hmm. Angular plus React is equal to Yeah, speed. yeah, yeah, that one. Uh, yeah, I watched that a week or two ago. It seems pretty amazing. I mean, I just this morning finished listening to the previous Adventures in Angular podcast, and the hardest thing for me to wrap my head around is the idea of this kind of uh, acyclic model change tree. I don't quite understand what everyone's talking about. Yeah, yet. it's the unidirectional <laughs> data flow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. That's right. Yeah, that's that's a, exactly. It's got I, us all spooked. So. <laughs> <laughs> spooked. Know, it sounds really fast. Yeah. We're ready to bolt at any moment. Well, we're not convinced well, they know what the implications are. Yeah, so, so devil's advocate here, right? You know, unidirectional data flow with, you know, an order of n speed and, you know, all this fun stuff is great. But if you're running in the same direction all day long, yeah, you're super fast. But what about the functionality? And I think that's the big question we're all hoping to hear is how do we replace what we used to have with, you know, this awesomeness of the two-way data binding and everything else and the new Angular 2? And that's the stuff that they didn't show code examples of that at ng-conf, but... 
that's the kind of stuff that they're working out right now, which uh, I think all of us are waiting for with bated breath. Ben, have you read Victor Sapkin's blog about change detection in Angular 2? It sounds familiar. I think I have it open yes. in the tab. Yeah, yeah but it yeah, didn't make me cool. feel like I got the answers I was looking for. No. It was all, it was all ponies and rainbows. <laughs> <laughs> Another pretty interesting piece to get some of this information is John Lindquist just posted to Egghead.io the first video on Angular 2 talking about template languages, but he actually kind of answers some of this question like, two-way binding, how do we get two-way binding in Angular 2? And it was pretty cool. One of the biggest hurdles for me right now in kind of wrapping my head around the Angular 2 stuff is all of the examples that are being shown in the videos are, I guess, at script and now they're TypeScript, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mishko keeps saying, you know, oh, well, we're not going to force people to use ES6. We're not going to force people to use TypeScript. You can still use, you know, regular, quote-unquote, regular right. JavaScript syntax. Right. But I feel like I haven't seen an example of what that looks like yet. It's hard for me. It's like, I don't want to look at CoffeeScript necessarily. I want to look at JavaScript so that I can build my mental model in a way that I feel most comfortable. So if I could see how, you know, these components and these type annotations and these template annotations are actually being translated into something that feels a little bit more familiar, then now I'd be, oh, okay, I see what the migration path is because, you know, you don't have a directive configuration object anymore. You're doing it this way for, as object properties or something. I, I'm making There's a couple of problems with it right now. I mean, you totally can, obviously, because it doesn't run unless it's ES5, right? Right. Browsers don't run ES6, they run ES5. So obviously it does work in ES5. The question is, what is it like to author in ES5? The other problem is, is right now it's using Tracer to transpile. That's the only transpiler they have that supports the... And really, what they're showing isn't at script or TypeScript so much as it's, it's ES6 plus the annotations, and Tracer supports the annotations and nobody else does. But really, as far as I understand, that's all it is, is ES6 plus the annotations. That's the only real important part. They do do take advantage of some other stuff at other places, but mostly what you're seeing is just ES6 and annotations. Mm. So when it compiles out, the problem is Tracer is terrible at making readable <laughs> ES5 code. So well, I've I don't seen think they're going to have that through. problem, Joe, with, with TypeScript uh, 1.5, and, and that was supposed to be out by now, but 1.5 generates ES5 and it's a lot cleaner. Right. Uh, Babel is working on supporting annotations, so it should be possible right. to use Babel as well, so we could get a better idea of what it might look like. But for annotations, for example, there's simply actually like a weird, there's just a property of the class. A static property of the class. Yeah. I, I think Ben speaks for everyone in saying we'd like to see more visibly what that looks like. But Yeah, but hearing, I'm hearing is fine, but we need to see some code at yeah. some point. Yeah. Need to see, they see some code and see more of it and see what really happens when you go whole hog this way. Right. I will say one thing. I've given a couple of presentations now on Angular 2 and had some pretty interesting conversations with people. One of the things that I think has come out of me prepping for all of this and then giving these presentations and talking to people that are looking and saying, oh, this and that, is I think that one of the things that Angular 2 is going to end up doing to our industry is causing a lot more people to say, hey, I think I'm going to put in a transpiler and actually start authoring an ES6, which, because it's kind of beautiful, and Angular makes that more obvious that, hey, ES6 authoring is really nice and beautiful, and then we're all going to benefit because ES6 is just a little bit nicer than ES5. So I'm actually kind of happy about this, that we're seeing all these examples in ES6, and I think my guess is by the end, it'll be obvious that you can author an ES5 or ES6, but it's just easier and nicer to author an ES6. And that a lot of people will start doing ES6 transpilers in their projects that aren't doing it now. I don't know what percentage of projects use an ES6 transpiler, but I would guess it's pretty low. I mean, I think we, historically, you'll see 
people migrate when they start to feel enough pain. Like when I first wrote CSS, I never learned about less or SAS. Right. And then I started to fool around with it and I was like, oh, this is mind blowing. How could I have ever done work without this previously? Right. And, you know, hopefully I'm like, a, I'm not in the transpiling step of my uh, journey yet. But I think once I see that and you see the power of it, then I'll be like, oh, okay, I get it. This is how I have to do things. Yeah. Right. You know, the first thing I do when I, when I use TypeScript and I'm a TypeScript fan I'm in Full disclosure, I have a TypeScript course on Pluralsight with Dan Wallin, but I don't use TypeScript a lot. And the reason is I don't use a lot of its features, but I still use it. So let me explain that. I write JavaScript inside of a TypeScript file so I get the basic design time and development experience, you know, checking of things that I need. So it helps me there. I don't necessarily take advantage of interfaces and classes and all that stuff all the time. But I do like how the TypeScript compiler will check for you to make sure that you're actually, you've got, you know, your types are set up properly and it can infer different things for you and check your function calls and some things with IntelliSense, which is great. That user experience is a lot better in Visual Studio, yes. obviously. Yeah, and things like OmniSharp can help you with that too on other platforms. And so, so I guess my point here is that you don't have to be full hog onto a transpiler to start with TypeScript. You could simply just do ES5 or ES6 right in a TS file inside of like Visual Studio or any other OmniSharp type tool. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. My my biggest hurdle is always, are these tools solving pain that I'm actually having? Because, yep. you know, honestly, there's so much debate about all of the problems with JavaScript. And right? like, I can't go a week without seeing some sort of tweeted photo about the JavaScript Bible versus JavaScript good parts in the same photo. I think it's funny, right? And I get it. And it's, there are a lot of quirks. But at the end of the day, JavaScript is not that weird. There are a couple of weird things. You know, wrapping your head around lexical binding and closures and understanding this bindings and how those can be changed dynamically. And we solve those problems. It's not like those, I mean, you have to learn them, right? But, but beyond that, I don't know. I, I don't find JavaScript to be the hurdle. The, the hurdle for me is architecting a large, complex application. And I, I agree with you 100%. Day, I, just, I don't think syntax is what's holding me back. Right. I agree. And even ES5 to ES6, it's why like, I like ES6, but I'm, I'm not all full hog on to go into ES6 yet either, simply because it's while it's cooler and it's making my life easier, it's not solving the biggest problems I have right now, which are architecture. Yeah. Sure. No, I, I totally agree with you guys. I've really never used a transpiler in a production environment, but having given these Angular presentations, Angular 2 presentations, and having to build everything in ES6, I'm actually kind of finding that, oh, like kind of Ben's experience, and my, I had the same experience with SAS. It's like, wow, this is actually really nice. I didn't realize yeah. what I was missing. Right. Now that I've seen it, maybe I'm going to have a harder time living without it. Yeah, and what's nice is, at least in TypeScript, or in Aaron Babel even, you're still writing JavaScript, right? You're writing yes. ES6 type stuff. It's unlike things like CoffeeScript, uh, where you're doing something completely different, in a lot of cases, with different right. syntax. I'm kind of where Ben is, though. I'm not sure I need all other stuff, but where what I do need is I have a problem with memory loss, which is I can't remember my own APIs the minute after <laughs> I write them, or anybody else's. And so I'm always got the browser open, and I'm searching in the browser for what the heck is the signature for that? And if the tooling can help me with that, I may be seduced back into it. I know we're coming to the end. I wanted to ask a somewhat related question, which is I'm struck by, Ben, you were talking about how you have this app, and you were stuck in Angular 1.0.8. <laughs> You couldn't even oh, get yeah. to 1.2, and we're up to 1.4, and 1.5 is coming. 
but you're back there in 1.08. What are the prospects in your world, serious prospects, of ever moving or moving to a 2.0? Or how would, how do you even think about bringing your customers, your clients to next versions? Great question. Our biggest sticking point for the upgrade itself is the limitation in guess, double transclusion on the same element. And specifically, our views, all of our nesting of views were originally built as ng switch statements that that had ng includes that built all of the nesting. And when Angular 1.2 came out, you couldn't transclude two directives on the same element. They've since loosened some of the restrictions there where, where they can do that. But I think ng, ng I don't know, there is, there's one that uh, we might actually be able to upgrade at this point. I haven't checked. But that's the biggest thing, simply because it's one of those things, you have so many cooks in the kitchen where if nobody was touching the application, I could probably get through the entire scope of all of the changes in a couple of days. But the issue is that by the time I get to the end of my couple of days, the rest of the team has committed 57 different commits on GitHub and all of those things have merged conflicts now and they've built new stuff that doesn't have these new changes and people aren't pulling in to develop as fast as they should. And that's been our biggest hurdle. You can't say, all right, we're having a migration sprint and all everything else is off? You can't do this that? This train has so much momentum with no brakes. It's, it's hard to get anything to slow down, unfortunately. I mean, this is a, you know, a cultural thing at the company. It's not you know, to each their own. But one thing that I've thought about doing is actually getting a version of Angular 1.2 and kind of going in and actually just monkeying with the source code to allow for the double transclusion, right? Because behind the scenes, uh, it uses that, uh, like, dollar sign TBL or TLB. I don't actually know what it stands for. And, and just turning that on in the source code so that I can do this and then slowly migrating the code to being more appropriately formatted. But I have not enough hours in the day sometimes. All right. Well, I'm going to cut us off. We've been uh, at this for an, over an hour, and we usually try and keep the show to 45 minutes. So, um, <laughs> Sorry. No, it, it's all good stuff. It's your stuff. fault, man. It's it. You're, you're off, man. That's it. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> it's just, it, it was so good, I didn't want to make it end, but we got to make it end. So let's go ahead and do picks. John Papa, do you want to start us with picks? Sure. So I'm bringing up a topic that I've loved in the past, and that is browsersync.io. And the reason I'm bringing it back up is recently I was going through my Gulp course and working on some of the files, and I saw on Twitter that BrowserSync, the uh, the Twitter uh, handle for it, was talking about a new version that it came out with. So I went and checked it out. They have some wicked cool new stuff in BrowserSync. And the biggest parts I love is they've now got support for W-E-I-N-R-E, that's the Web Inspector Remote, or Wayne Ray, or how do you pronounce that? So you can do all this remote debugging with your browser. You can also set up Browser Sync to change all the toggles on the fly inside the browser. So you might configure them at design time with Gulp or Grunt and then run it. But now you can actually change on the fly without having to restart the server. And my favorite part is now you can set up all this remote debugging and remote throttling too. So you can say, let me spin up four different servers one on 3G, one on 4G, one on Wi-Fi, one on, you know, unthrottled completely. And then run them all different ports simply by setting a uh, button inside the browser with Browser Sync. So if you haven't checked out Browser Sync, it has changed and it is utterly awesome. Such a time saver these days. Awesome. Joe, what are your picks? So my pick is going to be the Egghead I.O. video I mentioned earlier that John Lundquist did about the Angular 2 template syntax. It's an excellent little, it's only 11 minutes long, but really shows some cool features and pieces of Angular 2. Great way to learn, start learning a little bit about Angular 2. So that will be my pick for this week. All right. Lucas, what are your picks? 
So I have two quick picks. One is if you go to the Envision app website, you can actually sign up to win a t-shirt. I gave Ben $200 and he just gave me one. Totally awesome t-shirt. Actually, I love it. I wear it like six days a week and only take it off on the seventh day to rest and wash it. As well as, this is kind of meta, but I'm super stoked on the show. I didn't even say anything really on this episode, but it was just, my mind was reeling. Like, ton of great information. So my pick for Adventures in Angular is Adventures in Angular. How meta, meta. (laughs) Nice. Katya, what are your picks? Yes, my picks are Welcome to Night Vale, because everyone needs a podcast about totalitarian governments. That's the second or third time I've heard about that one. It's really good. Really odd, but really good. All right. Ward, what are your picks? Well, I broke the leg off my couch recently, so I'm picking Martin Heidegger's Being in Time, which philosophical tome checks in at 512 pages and just lifts up the edge of the couch. (laughs) (laughs) I don't recommend reading it, uh, exactly, but it does hold the couch up. Or, after you've got the couch level, there's a... From a performance perspective, I'm dealing with business apps. I'm always looking for a grid, and I haven't found a grid. And recently, something stumbled across my attention called Angular Grid, which is a guy who took the ideas in Slick Grid, which is a very, very fast grid, business grid, you know, with column pinning and grouping and stuff like that. And he took some of the ideas in there, but he made it a truly Angular-ish grid. And I'm going to put the link to it on uh, our show notes. And if you are writing a business app and you've been told that you must have a grid, a data grid like everybody's afraid of who's a developer, this is one I think is worth checking out. I can't speak from experience, but it's the first thing I've seen come along in a long time that looks like it's the perfect marriage of open source, fast grid for Angular. So check it out. All right. I've just got one pick. I'm pretty sure Joe's picked this one on the show before. It's Steelheart by Brandon Sanderson. Just finished reading it. It was awesome. I loved it. (laughs) Got to pick that. Um, You got to read that second book now, Chuck. Get right to it. I know. I'm going to buy it here pretty quick. But anyway, Ben, do you have some picks for us? Sure. Two picks. I'll keep it quick. One is a headphone extender that works with iPhone headphones. So for the longest time, my iPhone headphones weren't long enough to get to my monitor. So I lived in this world where I had my iPhone headphones for music. And then if I wanted to make a call over Skype, I had to switch headphones and it was a real pain. And the extender, what it allows is the audio and the mic to work through the my iMac here. And uh, it's changed my life. I'm, a, I'm in a one set of headphones world and uh, I'm never looking back. Wow, you can you can stop visiting the chiropractor. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, uh, it's awesome. Second pick, non-technical pick, I was in the uh, barber the other day and he had a movie, Any Given Sunday, on the TV. I don't know, it's, a, it's an old movie, an old football movie with Al Pacino. It struck me as being just an excellent example of team dynamics. And this idea that there's this football team and you have kind of the old guard where you have these guys who are aging out and you have the young hotshots that are coming in. And it's all about like, uh, you know, earning the right to disrespect people and to and to show your voice. And also at the same time, you know, trying to learn from the people who have been there a long time. And it's interesting. I feel like from an engineering standpoint, you get a lot of those same problems or dynamics in an engineering team right? where you have people that come in. They want to start using NoSQL databases. They want to start using React.js. And they don't necessarily take the time to learn from the old guard. You know, why are we using MySQL? Why are we using AngularJS? Why are we doing all these things and, and understanding the breadth of the application? And uh, I don't know. It just struck me as such a great sports parallel for, I think, what we see from engineering team dynamics as well. Any given Sunday. Very cool. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Ben. We Absolutely. really appreciate that. 
do we have any announcements about conferences? Ward? Well, <laughs> let's just keep telling them. Come on, there's Angular U in June. Come and see it. It'll be all about what Angular 2.0 and friends, all this stuff you have to do around it, what the early actual experience is because they will have, it will have had some time in the field by that time. Yep. Same thing for NG Vegas. Stickers are still on sale and I'm excited to have John Lindquist come in and teach and I'm excited for Angular U as well. Really excited for that. So I'm excited for my talk. <laughs> Not because I like listening to my ta- self talk, I enjoy the research <laughs> phase of giving a talk and actually, you know, learning stuff really in depth. So, some Angular 1 and Angular 2 stuff in my talk. I'm excited for that. And uh, I'm excited to go down to Vegas and, and chill out. It'll be fun. I thought you were going to say, it's not that I like hearing myself talk, I like you hearing myself talk. <laughs> <laughs> I like when other people hear me talk. Yes, he likes basking in the glow of applause. <laughs> And long walks on the NG beach. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, I guess we'll wrap up. We'll catch everybody next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit cachefly.com to learn more. Do you want to have conversations with the Adventures in Angular crew and their guests? Do you want to support the show? Now you can. Go to adventuresinangular.com forum and sign up today. 